0: Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld.
1: Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture.
0: Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly whenever your case is on hold.
1: Welcome back to another fun issue of Your Cases on Hold podcast. I'm Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor for Adult Reconstruction, and here I have my friend.
0: I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods, and annoyed because Antonia keeps calling LV lewis Whitman. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, I get a little confused. <laughs> a letter is a letter, right? That's what I call friend. So we'd like to make a, true, a few announcements, which are not new to you guys who've been listening all along. Uh, first, these opinions are our own. They do not represent anyone else on JBJS, the board, or anyone else. And we would give a shout out to Clinical Classrooms, so we are currently seeking orthopedic surgeons with at least five years of experience following residency or fellowship to join our clinical classrooms team. This is a good opportunity to develop questions and learning resources. Interested surgeons should be board certified and enthusiastic about education. And please email customer support at jbjs.org to learn more. So without further ado, let's jump right into things. Why don't you tell me about your headline news?
0: Headlines for today are modern external ring fixation versus internal fixation for treatment of severe open tibial fractures, a randomized clinical trial. This was the Fix-It study. It's from O'Toole and colleagues. It is free for 30 days, so no excuses. Everyone check it out. And there is also a visual summary. This is a very interesting RCT that I selected as my headline. Obviously, RCTs are very important and the sine qua non of research. These uh, investigators looked at modern ring external fixation versus internal fixation in severe open tibial fractures. The study included 260 randomized patients and uh, 254 were included in the final analysis. The research is really well done. If you're interested in doing RCTs or looking at the way an RCT should be written up, This can really serve as a primer, so I encourage you to check it out, even if you're not working in this clinical space. The results showed that the external fixation was associated with a higher risk of complications, loss of reduction, implant failure, and then no difference in the probability of deep infection, which is really the outcome that these types of interventions are are trying to avoid when you're selecting one versus the other. They do do a good job of documenting the limitations. There may have been an issue with expertise bias in the utility and application of the external ring fixators, and um, obviously it's impossible to blind um, people making assessments or the patients themselves regarding what type of surgery they had. So those are some challenges, but I think they did a very good job. It's very interesting work and worth everybody's read. Um, in addition, I would highlight this as something that's likely to pop up uh, as testable material in the future.
1: You mean another Kaiser Sose? No,
0: because like, Kaiser Soze is like when you think it's not a big deal and then mm-hmm. like, everyone's quoting it. This is legitimate and upfront. You know the bad guy when you see him.
1: It's a big deal. I completely agree with you. It's a good question to answer. And again, most people say open fracture badness. Don't stick anything internal. So kind of changing the status quo, which I like to see in research studies. So cool to see that in a prospective manner. So a lot of work that goes into that. Definitely. And and the acronym is pretty cool. Let's be honest. Yeah, fix it. (laughs) It did pretty well with that one. So fix it hard. Felix. I'm gonna <laughs> fix it. As opposed to Wreck It Ralph, because Wreck right. It Ralph yeah. is the opposite of the Wreck It Ralph study now. The follow-on <laughs> wreck it Ralph study. That'd be the next uh, right wreck. <laughs> Probably not the best acronym to pull out. <laughs> So I'm talking about wrecking, how about wrecking the femoral head? So mine is on comparing the risk of osteonecrosis of the femoral head following intraarticular steroids and hyaluronic acid injections, which is an interesting comparison because not that many hyaluronic acid injections are done for the hip, mostly for approval reasons and other things. But it is a good study question in that people have sometimes um, demonstrated that if you give cortisol injections intra-articularly, it increases the risk of osteonecrosis of the femoral head. And so instead of comparing patients who didn't get injections and didn't get injections, it kind of isolated. Did the actual substance of the injection uh, make a difference? Um, this is done here, uh, mgb by uh, Dr. Verity, who is a prolific offer in, mo- in multiple different areas. The hard part is database studies are always a little bit hard, right? You have to identify the joint correctly and laterality correctly. And it's very hard to do in these database studies. Um, it's one of those acknowledgments that people understand that laterality is not a thing, right? You can get a right hip cortisone injection, but get osteonecrosis of the femoral head on the left side, and it may not be recorded. So that's one of those areas that people have to be careful of. And the hard part is CPT code the same, 20610 for the hip, shoulder, or uh, knee, right? Because it's a major joint. So people have to be careful just in terms of that. It was really smart for the author to exclude a few ones. They looked at, you know, they excluded hip, they excluded shoulder, and they excluded things like bursitis, because those are areas that can get cortisone injections, potentially could impact osteonecrosis of the femoral head, but normally not. So it may have been interesting because they, they did look at patients who were predisposed to osteocrosis. They did you know, alcohol use and uh, sickle cell disease, things like that. It may be beneficial. They included certain chemotherapeutic agents or diagnosis certain cancers because they can predispose patients to osteonecrosis. But eventually they had two groups. They had one group that got the color zone injection and they matched that four to one with propensity score matching to those who got hyaluronic acid injections and get those injections into the hip. And again, they four to one because there's many more patients who got corticosteroid injections versus hyaluronic acid injections. Now, the only thing I would say there is the hyaluronic acid injection first group may be a little bit biased, right? Why were these patients being given hyaluronic acid in the first place? They already have a necrosis, which they tried to exclude, or was there a history or a you know predisposition or something like that? So that's the only tough part about it is that um, that patient population can be slightly biased, but still a good population because the fact that it is Um, getting intra-articular injection. I'll have to ask my methodology editor for this, but I thought that the propensity score matching criteria was quite comprehensive. And I looked at age, sex, geographic region, comorbidities, injection indication, for example, osteonecrosis versus osteoarthritis, the year of injection, time in the database prior to the injection, and time in the database following the injection to make sure they had adequate follow-up. And again, the follow-up they did was two years, not just the typical one year for complications after injection. The the four to one matching is a question. You know, it's one of those things where why not three to one? Why not five to one matching? But they did have cortisone um, as a bigger group, understandably, compared to hyaluronic acid. Um, And they found that there was no difference in osteonecrosis and cortisone injections versus hyaluronic acid. And this is a big cohort of patients. This is using the market scan database. And so there's a lot of patients in this database. Is good. And they had a similar rate of what we always want to know is when do they convert to surgery? So this similar rate of converting to total hip arthroplasty. And they really did a nice job with the sensitivity analysis. You know, they said, "Well, you know, what if it were? You know, we accidentally coded and included hips, and it included shoulders, and it included other areas." So they did do a nice sensitivity analysis. So, in my opinion, this case is not on hold. You know, I may be of use to surgeons who do give injections and send patients for hip injections and know that it may not increase the risk of osteonecrosis. They can still happen. But in this study that shows that did not make a big difference with regards to osteocrosis of the femoral head, cortisone injections versus viscous supplementation.
0: Yes, I would, I would agree. The only uh, caveat would be, you know, it is claims-based data. You cannot really use claims-based data to make direct informative correlations to clinical practice. You're talking about research that's in the realm of coding and reporting to insurance and things of that nature. So it's not like every single one of these had x-rays or CT or MRI obtained at scheduled times to say, no, there is no osteonecrosis. So it's, it's an association. It's interesting. I wouldn't put it on hold, certainly, but I don't know that you can take that a one-to-one and say, yes, it's a free and clear plan on no concerns for osteonecrosis in these contexts
1: always be careful. <laughs> it's like smoking the bear <laughs> anyway, or forest fires, you know, same thing. So let's talk about your cases on hold creation of a total hip arthroplasty patient-specific dislocation risk calculator by Wiles and all. There is a commentary associated with that. So again, you don't have to listen to us, listen to other people and read what they say too. What are your thoughts?
0: Uh, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, here we are. It's the start of summer. And um, I, for one, was like, "I need another risk calculator study." There are just not enough risk calculators out there. So these authors were happy to oblige, and like Jaws, it's back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give me the theme music because uh, here we go. <laughs> you ready for it? <laughs> the phone is ringing. I feel like it's anesthesia again. <laughs> Your case is on hold.
1: No, don't do it to me.
0: <laughs> so. These authors, you know, conducted uh, work to develop a nomogram, a scoring system to help figure out the risk for dislocation following total HIPS in what they maintain would be a patient-specific way. And I think it's patient-specific in the context of how you define (laughs) patient-specific. It all depends on what your definition of patient-specific is they used 20 years worth of data from their center evaluating dislocation risk. So they had 20 years worth of potential follow-up, but the average follow-up was about six years. And they identify a number of factors using um, hazard ratios, and they do this for primary total hips as well as revision total hips. So in the primary total hip group, they identify the direct anterior approach and the lateral anterior approach as being preferable to the posterior approach, and then a combination of larger diameter femoral head and elevated liner. And they make commentary based on the hazard ratios of these hazard ratios being lower than, than other ones. And they they use this to kind of construct the nomogram. But it's important to keep in mind that the hazard ratios are relative to the reference. They're not. Translatable across all the variables. And they maintain that the resultant nomogram can be used as a screening tool to identify patients at high risk for dislocation following total hip arthroplasty and then to individualize the operative decisions. That's great. There's no proof that this works. Further, I don't work in the arthroplasty space, obviously. So my last real exposures to arthroplasty were in training. But these were all things that we were talking about in training like 17 years ago.
1: <laughs> so. All right, look, we do have new things, not many.
0: <laughs> so, you know, and while some of these things are potentially discernible up front, like obviously if you're going to go posterior and you have the ability to go anterior, maybe that factors into it, but none of these things really seem that patient specific to me.
1: Fair. And I, I guess the one thing I will say is that from patient specific part, it's that they're potentially like modifiable, non modifiable, right? And I like the modifiable factors of things. They're not super specific. And I completely agree. They don't with seem modular, though. That's true. That's true. And, and seems, when you come, I mean, like it would be the same thing for every patient, right? Right. And, and that's the thing is, how are you going to maximize, right? You'll maximize bigger heads. I think the one, so I will say two things here. One to your idea of patient specific, I wish they had more specific data, meaning like, I wish they had more specific data about like spine measurements, you know, not just like had spine surgery, but like, you know, pelvic incidence, sacral slope, things that people have been doing that you can actually measure and then make adjustments for, you know? So if your patient has this sacral slope, and there are some other studies that do this, then (laughs) you should run to Dunkin's and get your coffee and drink it. Yes. I was just looking at a cup of coffee and we're in Boston. So we have to talk about Dunkin Donuts. So, you know, run to using your 36 millimeter head. So one of the things I would say that could be beneficial is like, we don't all want to jump to dual mobility. So when should I use dual mobility? When should I use a 36 millimeter head? What percentage would it make? But what percentage would it make a difference for me or my patient? And that we don't know, right? So if I say like, well, if I use a 36 millimeter head and this, you know, direct anterior approach, your risk of dislocation is going to be... 14%. But if he's a dual mobility, it's 17%. You know, do I take the trade off? There's liner issues potentially and things like that. So you're right in that way. I agree because it may not make a huge difference, but maybe in a patient who you're worried about having that three extra percent might be beneficial. Fair enough. I guess for my question to you as a spine surgeon is that, you know, they classified minor spine disease, major spine disease, minor spine surgery, and major spine surgery. That was a little bit hard because what does that mean to you?
0: I don't know. And it just goes into like the, you know, again, speaking to like, no one classifies in the spine space conditions or procedures in in that manner.
1: So that's what happens in orthoplasty surgeons to get a hold of something. (laughs) But still enjoyable in that manner. So interesting thought. It was probably one of newer calculators because normally calculators would dump a lot into one area, but this did differentiate between what you could do in the operating room setting versus preoperatively. Again, not modifiable per se, but at least be able to account for those factors. So interesting that way. Ready for some toss up? Toss up time. Up long-term results and failure analysis of the open lateral procedure and arthroscopic anchor repair in adolescence by Walton et al. There's also a commentary and for 30 days, it's free anesthesia is still on
0: the phone. Home. Yeah, this is a, a study, a very small number of patients, retrospective work, that runs between 2002 to 2012. And then I, I don't know what happened to, you know, there's a whole another 10 years potentially that could have been included in there that we're just not really discussing. And they're comparing 40 eligible patients who underwent arthroscopic bank heart repair to um, individuals who underwent an open J procedure. And that was 37 patients who underwent the open J. It's important to note that they have specific indications for the Latter-day procedure in this retrospective study. And anyone who didn't meet those indications, high physical activity level involving the shoulder, overhead contact athlete, preoperative glenoid bone loss greater than 15%, failure of prior bank heart repair, all of those patients who didn't have those things, they got the bank heart repair. So that right there is spelling out some possible indication bias. Furthermore, yeah, what, what? (laughs) <laughs> yes, <bias galore>. <laughs> <laughs> Then they have treatment failure, which was the outcome of interest, 20 shoulders in the Bankart group and two in the Latter-J group, which amount to 57 versus 6%. And their conclusion is that adolescents are at a high risk for treatment failure after Bankart repair. Latter-J should be strongly considered. So we're making this determination on two shoulders that failed in one group and 20 obviously you know a larger percentage from a relatively small number of candidate individuals do these figures hold up in larger samples is the real fundamental question and then also you know with secular trends is where we were in the decade 2002 to 2012 where we are now 2002 is 20 years ago from where, where we stand right now Our procedures, our techniques are the things that were being done at that time and the prior experience of individuals who were being treated at that time commensurate with what we're seeing today. I I don't know for a fact, but I would wager probably not. And uh, for those reasons, small numbers, years of inclusion in the more remote past, point estimates that are probably not likely to hold up in larger samples or in the modern light of day. The points that they make, I guess, could be considered, but again, with that paragraph that I read to you, with the possible indication bias, there's there are just so many causes for pauses here, permanent, permanent type pauses.
1: You put this case on hold.
0: Oh, it's on hold.
1: It's on you hold. I know it.
0: I know it. Plague doctor's not back there. He's at home, but he knows it as well.
1: Cases on hold. Sorry. Totally <laughs> agree. Previous film bank of repair got the letter J. It's not a good sample of comparisons and. Multi-center studies exist for a reason, right? You can aggregate numbers together. And if you aggregate numbers together, you get bigger sample sizes. They can potentially see more effect sizes. So I'm sorry, your case is on hold. Are you ready for our final big finish?
0: All right, gonna have to go fast here. I'm up first. This is the pre-arthritic kinematic alignment in fixed-bearing medial unicompartmental knee arthroplasty results in return to activity at mean 10-year follow-up. This seems like an ideal study for you to present, but we just had limited things to choose from, so this one ended up with me. This is 150 medial UKAs um, out of a single experiential practice and mean follow-up 10 years, so that's great. Their conclusions were that the pre-arthritic kinematically aligned knees had superior outcomes and achievement of the uh, the PASS, which um, is, of course, the patient-acceptable symptom state. And then knees that fell within three degrees of a simple measurement that they uh, disclosed, the AHKA, on a three-foot long-standing radiograph, they had greater longevity, and return to activities. So definitely factors to consider. There is an infographic for those who want to check that out. An interesting retrospective expose on this center's uh, experience. And then for those who are doing medial UKAs, you have to decide how aligned their practice is with your own.
1: I know you don't really want to comment on these things, but it is a single surgeon series. So just because one person can do it doesn't mean everyone can do it. That's right. All right, switching things up a little bit. Risk of revision after hip fracture fixation using Depu-Synthese Trochanteric Fixation Nail or Trochanteric Fixed Nail Advanced, a cohort of over 7,000 patients, nearly 8,000 patients. This is by Goodnow. And I think the trait take-home message, which we don't see in, surgery, in research as much, and orthopedic surgeons are guilty of this, is normally we talk about positive outcomes almost all the time, right? It's always something positive that comes on it. So our study was looking at the original nail, which was the TFN, and the TNFA, which is the advanced version of it. And they were comparing them and basically showed that change isn't always good. Now we always think advanced sounds better, but change isn't always good. So in 2014, they released a new nail, and the idea is that it changed the geometry of it in a different manner and they changed the alloy of the nail. And this is where registries are actually very useful. This is not this study, but previous studies using the Australian registry demonstrated potentially novel failure mode through the implant fracture at the proximal screw aperture of the nail because of the change in alloy and because of the change in geometry. So again, this is what happens is they had a study, they looked at a study period 2014 to 2019, and they compared patients who got the TFN and the TFN alpha. Now, what I would ask is, how did one get chosen over the other? Some of it was a little bit historic, you know, people weren't all switching over at the same time initially. So TFN was heavier weighted in the beginning of it and TNFA was um, weighted towards the end of it, but I will say that they were interspersed. So it didn't actually say how people, patients were selected to choose which one, or if they're gonna get blade or screw. So that's one of the biases I would say with the study. But over the study timeframe, you can see that the blade and screw had similar results, but the TNF advanced actually had worse outcomes. It did have a large number of patients, which is good, and they had a long follow-up. So three years of follow-up was good. A revision rate was similar between patient populations, 1.8 versus 1.9. But if you're adjusting for covariates, there was no difference in risk for revision, but the problem was non-union, a higher risk of non-union for a TNF advanced compared to the TNF alpha. So this is looking at just US data. This is not looking at international data, Australian data. So it adds to the literature. of saying maybe the TNF advanced this is not the way to go. And the idea is be careful when starting a new implant. Um, and the idea is that things things, can happen. So this is where registries are great. And we're going to continue seeing this more and more over time to see if implant failed. And again, just one center is not enough. But over an aggregate, over a country, you can see a lot more.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested in seeing these results from the Wakanda joint, uh, the, the Wakanda fracture registry.
1: Got a lot of info. All right. All next right. Up.
0: Next one up. Mesenchymal stem cell exosomes promote growth plate repair and reduce limb length discrepancy in young rats. This is work from Wong and colleagues. Very interesting. I, I really enjoyed reading the study. They're creating growth plate defects uh, in the distal part of the right femur uh, in 40 rats. And then they introduce uh, it's a experimental The experimental group is the stromal stem cell exosomes or mesenchymal stromal stem cell exosomes. And then they did the other with just PBS and an equivalent amount of volume as the control group. And then they look at limb length discrepancy, bone bridge formation, and the uh, chondrocytes and sulfate glycosaminoglycan and collagen at the microscopic level. In the two groups. So, limb length discrepancy between the involved limb and the contralateral limb in the experimental exosome treated group was significantly less. There were more chondrocytes, higher error percentage with deposition of glycosaminoglycan and collagen type two, although bone bridge formation was not inhibited. So, that's really what you're trying to uh, avoid. So some positive things, but bone bridge formation, which is the absolute negative result, that wasn't really impacted. They do find that there is evidence of enhanced fysio repair and, again, reduced limb length discrepancy. This would be a minimally invasive therapeutic that can be applied relatively easily close to the time of identified fysio injury to reduce long-term ramifications or some long-term ramifications very interesting. Obviously, this is bench top and not yet translational. And as we have touched, going back to the your case is on hold, episode one, first appearance in YCOH number one. From you, Dr. Chen, we are not pigs. When talking about the experimental pig study, we are not rats. They have the ability to heal things in ways that that we can't. So we can't assume that this is definitely going to work, but definitely an interesting start, an exciting start, an intriguing start. And let's see where, where it goes going forward.
1: I wish I could heal like them. Do you know how nice it would be? Yeah, you, you, you want to be Wolverine. You want to heal like
0: the, the rat people. Oh, um,
1: and have those claws. Do you know how efficient yeah. surgery could be? I mean, sitting <laughs> down the bone. Tearing things up. Literally, tearing things <laughs> Literally, up. Tearing things up.
0: <laughs> and, and I bet you anesthesia, if you pull the claws out, would not put your case on hold ever. <laughs> they would, they would give head. you, they would give you Dr. Kang's room. They'd be like, "Oh yeah, uh, chair. We, your case is on hold. We got to have a, a Dr. chen go. It's a priority."
1: Our adamantium has pretty big properties on multiple levels. <laughs> privileges,
0: membership has its privileges.
1: I love it. All right, finishing us out on a statistical shape model based analysis of tabula osteotomies, technical considerations to achieve the targeted correction. This is by Kretchling and all. Thirty days freeze. It's an interesting idea. So The idea is you're looking at PAOs, which is periacetibular osteotomies, either a classic version or reverse PAOs. And the idea was to see and analyze the necessary translation as the function of degree using a model of the pelvis, according to whichever technique you're looking at, either classic or reverse, and putting that into practice and seeing the overlap to see what happened. But the idea is that's really neat. In a computer modeling system, it's really hard to translate that. If you've ever been in a PAO before, you make a cut and you're trying to move things in place, you're using an x-rays uh, and using fluoral and it's hard to translate into the clinical setting. Um, they use one main model and they have two extremes of that, one standard deviation in both directions. I probably would have liked to see models such as like DDH, right? Because that's the area or some sort of dysplasia or certain acetabular settings that would be uh, more relevant to a potentially clinically setting. And the idea is that if you reorient it in certain ways and you translate these fragments, and I always thought PAOs are kind of like a video game, right? Like you just put it somewhere, you put screws in it and it looks amazing and they do great. But it's not translated. Sorry, they draw it
0: in the textbook. That's, That's it.
1: It <laughs> So easy. <laughs> and then you go see a and you're like, these guys are masters and wizards and they're artists and true artists, not in the context of like hip and knee replacements where we follow a like textbook setting, right? So they are artists putting it together and they want to change the rotational center, center. But the idea is that it's hard to see exactly where that fragment goes for reorientation, re-orientation abduction and extension. So, you know, it, it's a good thought process. I think from a applicable standpoint, it's a little bit harder to see from a concept perspective. So I am not Picasso. I am not Leonardo da Vinci. I wish I were, but I am a simple Michelangelo because I do hip and knee replacements.
0: Very humble. <laughs>
1: Just kidding. As is every joint surgeon, we're all Michelangelo. The David is our artwork, what can we say? <laughs> Well, thank you everyone for joining us for another issue of your cases on hold. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks everybody.